Ireland, but right now on the line, I'm joined by Ken Keith. Uh, good morning, Ken. Good morning. Uh, how are you today, sir? Very well, thank you. And you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad at all. Right, you're in Dunedin to talk about, um, well, give a talk called World Peace Through World Law, the role of the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, and other uh, international courts and tribunals. Uh, you were on, uh, you were a sitting judge on the International um, Court of Justice from 2006 to 2015, the first New Zealander to do so. So, congratulations on that one, I guess. But I, I guess you got all the accolades many years ago. Um, but also, uh, judge on New Zealand Court of Appeal and Supreme Court, as well as um, many other things over the years. Um, now, looking at the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, uh, the court, um, you know, has a place in ruling on disputes, uh, so it kind of uh, so it can lessen the incentive to resort to force. Um, but how do you enforce the rulings? And, uh, you know, is it really, is the court really relying on faith? Well, you, you could ask the same question of um, judges of the Supreme Court or Court of Appeal or High Court, District Court here. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if a ruling is made against the New Zealand government, when I was a judge here, what uh, force did I have to bring to bear or what force did the court have to bring to bear? And states uh, over the centuries have slowly come to accept that... Um, some matters have to be dealt with by courts. Mm -hmm. It's been a, slow, a long, slow process, even in uh, national systems. Yeah. And, and in fact, over the time I was at the International Court, there was only one uh, decision that was plainly um, breached. It was a decision relating to Mexicans on death row in the United States, and some of them notwithstanding the efforts of the federal authorities to persuade state authorities to behave better. Mm -hmm. Some of them were executed without the proper processes being followed. So, and, and we gave, in the course of that time, we dealt with disputes um, from all over the world between um, uh, other, another dispute between Mexico and the US, cases between Peru and Chile, Colombia and Nicaragua, mm -hmm. the DRC and Guinea and so on and so on, and they were all complied with. I mean, how the United States hasn't signed up to the um, Court of Justice, though, is it? Sorry? The, no, no, the U.S. is. Um, there's confusion about all the different courts and tribunals. Um, they're, not, they're not a member, not a party to the statute of the International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. The International Court of Justice is the court of the United Nations, and all members of the U.N., all 193, are... Um, parties to the statute of the court. They still, though, have to consent um, to the court having jurisdiction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in the case I mentioned, um, the United States was party to a particular convention relating to uh, consular uh, matters, diplomatic matters, and that provided that uh, the court had jurisdiction yeah. over, over disputes between states. So this is between Mexico and the US. And, and so, similarly, we had a case involving Russia, brought by Georgia, about Russian uh, alleged uh, racial discrimination, mm -hmm. where again the convention, that particular convention uh, from the early 70s, uh, provided for court jurisdiction. Well, um, you mentioned earlier on uh, f the United States federal and uh, state level. I mean, can you judge on matters like that? between, you know, the federal government and state governments? No, no. Um, the, the court made a ruling um, 
in the early 2000s, actually just before I got to the court, um, requiring um, the US, and it would apply to any state, including New Zealand, for instance, when, when you have an alien um, in your court system, they have the right to consular assistance. Yeah. And, and uh, that hadn't been provided in some of these cases. The difficulty that the United States had arose simply from, well, simply putting it wrongly, from its constitutional system under which those matters were being dealt with at the state level by Arizona or Texas or whoever it was. And, and the Bush administration, to give them credit, did say, former gov- governor of Texas, <laughs> George Bush, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. did say to the Texan authorities, look, um, get your act into order comply with this direction, this ruling of the International Court, but unfortunately that didn't happen. So that was a a glitch within the US constitutional system and uh, the International Court can't do anything about that. Yeah, and we we know how they don't like to change their amendments, so uh, (laughs) things would be quite difficult. Well, um, give us a a background on the International Court of Justice. Um, What is it and what uh, what is its natural role? Well, there are 15 judges who get elected, um, as you said, mm-hmm. uh, in your introduction, to nine-year nine terms. And the 15 judges come from all over, you know. So I had, had colleagues from uh, Russia and China and America and Slovakia and uh, Somalia and uh, Uganda and so on and so on. Um, it goes back to... Uh, 1920, really, uh, within the League of Nations Mm -hmm. time, but then in 1945 it was continued. So the 15 judges get elected um, every three years. There are five vacancies. And and over over the 70-odd years of the court, there have been about 100 judges. So I was very fortunate in terms of timing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then cases come to it um, on the basis of states having consented one way or another, and I mentioned states having had, had consented and under those particular conventions. States mm-hmm. can also sign up in a more general way, as New Zealand, for instance, has to say, we accept the jurisdiction of the court. And then matters will be brought. For instance, Australia uh, brought a case against Japan about whaling. Yep. And New Zealand got involved in that as a intervener, not as a party. Um, and, and there the dispute was whether... Um, so-called scientific whaling by Japan um, fell within the exception in the whaling convention uh, and the court said no it didn't uh, and uh, Japan did not continue with that year's whaling. Yeah, yeah. It has of course continu- um, developed a new scheme and uh, so there are ongoing questions about whether it's now again in breach but um, that matter hasn't come back to the court. So, so governments have to make a choice at times about whether they want to litigate, uh, and if so, litigate at the international court or in some other place, or whether they would prefer to negotiate uh, mm-hmm. the matters away. Um, who, who elects the members, uh, and are, are judges put forward by um, the the country, the member countries, and then they go into a process of, of um, picking and choosing through the UN? Yes, the the election is um, thinking of another recent election in New York. Yeah. Um, the election is uh, by both the General Assembly and the Security Council, so mm-hmm. it's necessary to um, get a majority in each. 
So there's power of veto one would, would, would expect as well from Security Council members? Well, no, there's no veto in this case, but that means you've got to get 8 out of 15 in the Security Council and 97 or more in the General Assembly. And um, thinking of New Zealand's record in this respect, um, Jared Van Behamen, who's you know the ambassador in uh, New York at the moment, uh, was one of the leaders, along with Prime Minister Alan Clark, mm-hmm. of my campaign 10 years back, and uh, that was a success. Um, I, in the end, uh, uh, through through the efforts and whatever qualities people saw in me, through the efforts of uh, the New Zealand uh, government, um, I got 150-something votes in the General Assembly, more than the American and Russian mm-hmm. uh, judges, and um, a majority in the Security Council as well, and defeated a Spanish candidate. Oh, nice. So it was a long, difficult process, and something that a government like New Zealand would take on only very rarely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, like Spain too, because they're the exact antipode of us. Everyone thinks it's, it's Britain, but it's, it's yes. actually Spain. Yes. Um, well, well it, the, the group is Western Europe and others. You know, yeah, others yeah, yeah. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and maybe one or two others. Yeah. Um, one good thing about the International Court of Justice is that you know there's an even footing for nations um, because it is through UN. So whether you're you know you can have put. Big nation, uh, small nations can come uh, and file against big ones, and I, I guess you're seeing that right now with the Marshall Islands. Yes. Um, yes. Up against India, saying they're not fulfilling its obligations under the customary law uh, to pursue negotiations to cease, cease the nuclear arms race. Yes. Um, yes. But then one one would think that, that India's got a would have a case for well. The Marshall Islands can bring this against us, but you know we're, we're neighbours with uh, China and Pakistan. Um, so, uh, for our own national security reasons, we'll go against whatever ruling has come out from the International Court of Justice. Yes, well, in, in fact, um, just last Wednesday, uh, seven or eight days ago, the the court, um, by quite a narrow majority, held in respect not just of India but also Pakistan and the UK, they being the three, mm-hmm. that. Um, it did not have jurisdiction because uh, the court said um, there was no dispute. And just going to your point about other countries um, like China and, for that matter, France and uh, the United States and North Korea and uh, Israel and so on, uh, I think there are nine other nuclear powers at the moment, um, there, was a, there was a good argument which um, one of the judges developed a little that... Only if all um, the uh, nuclear powers were there uh, could the, the court really deal with the matter. Mm. You know, they, they had interrelated obligations, and uh, there's a good deal of force in that argument. Yeah. So that case, for the moment anyway, um, is, is, uh, ceased, has ceased because of the court saying no jurisdiction because of the point of filing there was no dispute yeah i mean um to cases like that um because you know the marshall islands was deeply affected by nuclear tests by the united yes, states yes. for a very long time so you can understand why they are very much against these yes. uh you know nuclear arms but, but so is new zealand and do we go and uh, do other countries like new zealand go and backing um you know uh, countries like the marshall islands when they file these things well they they didn't in that case um it's possible that they could have but uh, if you go go back, uh, uh, what is it, 40 years, um, 1973, 74, and then again in 1995, we were, with Australia, 
uh, and then at the later date um, by ourselves. Mm-hmm. There against France, going to your point about big countries and small, yeah. try, trying to stop France testing um, nuclear weapons in, in the Pacific, and and in the end, you know, these, there are various causes, no doubt, of government decision making, but in the end, the French did stop testing in the atmosphere in '74, mm-hmm. and and then um, underground in '95. In both cases, uh, shortly after New Zealand had pleaded. Uh, so, so that sometimes uh, litigation will be part of a broader process, and and that was true of the Marshalls mm-hmm. cases too, because they were just trying to get they were, they weren't asking for nuclear disarmament on the spot. They were asking for good faith negotiations, yeah. saying that um, the states in question were in breach of that obligation. Well, I mean, you look at the states of Russia, United States and Russia, and they are, you know, they are pulling back. They are disarming a lot of nuclear weapons. They've still got a lot. Yes. Don't get me wrong. But it, I, and I guess it seems like India and Pakistan being, well, India's had nuclear weapons for a very long time. Yes. But they are growing their arsenal. And I guess, uh, and, and that's the fear with uh, instability within at least Southeast Asia, um, that this that will continue for quite some time. Uh, yes, well, you know, the, the world does face um, at least two terrible threats. I think one is that uh, is the uh, nuclear, uh, our nuclear armaments, and, and the second is uh, climate change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and these are matters which um, do require um, very close and ongoing and serious commitment by states, uh, quite apart from all the dreadful breaches as well that are happening, say, in Aleppo and so on too. So, so... The um, a court can only do um, a certain amount to try to deal with these problems. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to think when I was a judge here that in many ways it was a very gloomy task because you're almost always at the bottom of the cliff. Yeah. You know, people have had terrible lives and they've committed terrible crimes, or allegedly. Uh, and and um, the first case I sat on in The Hague was a follow-up to the uh, dreadful actions in Srebrenica by... Um, Milosevic, Karadzic, and Mladic, uh, who, who all three of them were prosecuted too in the uh, criminal tribunal for former Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess when it comes to climate change, it must be quite difficult um, because other, certain states and countries have their own rules around emissions. Uh, yeah. I know, you know, and uh, and then when you look at the United States, um, their own independent um, states. Have different rules around uh, things like fracking uh, and, and the like. So making a ruling, um, it's hard to make a blanket ruling. It's like you'd almost have to make a ruling state by state, wouldn't you? Yes, and and I mean it's an area which um, very much requires uh, political decisions and and new agreements and enforceable agreements. And and you know a, an important step forward was taken. Um, in Paris late last year with the, that new new agreement and, mm-hmm. and and there's been a further development I think of the agreement that is a real practical is a real practical interest to in New Zealand about the hole in the ozone layer and so on 
you know, so progress does occur. Yeah. Uh, but um, a lot of this is long and difficult to achieve. Yeah, yeah. And you've got developing nations that, you know, are starting to come up economically like Brazil and uh, and, and, and India and, 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 and the like. And, and they say, well, their economy is smaller, but they've got big outputs. It's kind of unfair. Yeah, and then you've got sure. smaller nations that are saying, well, we make small impacts. Um, so why should we have to bring ours back? And New Zealand is one of those that's doing that very thing at the moment, um, which seems really backwards to where we were in the 80s and the 90s where we used to lead on these things. So for me, that's a little bit disappointing. But, um, you know, is there any actions being brought against New Zealand in terms of climate change? Uh, no, well, not not um, not in international courts, but, I mean, a lot, there's a lot of criticism of lack of action, as, as you say. And But New Zealand did sign up in time to be one of the first um, uh, one of the states that um, helped bring the uh, that Paris Agreement into force mm-hmm. um, it's one of the first 55 with, with some part of the 55% of uh, climate em- emissions I, I should mention too that emissions, I should mention too that the court has a second um, jurisdiction in addition to the jurisdiction between states it can give advisory opinions Mm-hmm. on matters of international law and there's been talk for some good time about um, Palau or some you know tiny um, Pacific state um, uh, or the Maldives and the Indian Ocean um, mm. bringing seeking um, through a general assembly resolution to get a ruling from the court on uh, various climate change issues but that's been although there's been a lot of negotiation in New York about that um, that resolution hasn't yet been tabled and pursued. There was, for instance, uh, in the mid-90s, um, a case or two cases brought to the uh, International Court by that route um, relating to um, the use of nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. uh, partly through the efforts of uh, IPPNW, the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, with um, New Zealand's uh, Eric Geiringer and uh, George Salmon uh, playing really important roles as part of that NGO. Do you, do you, do you think um, that when 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 the inevitable happens, when countries, states like Kiribati, and that are forced to, you know, the people are forced to leave the islands um, as an effect of climate change? Do you think? Do you see? Um, they in any way will be able to prosecute against large states with large outputs of emissions? Uh, well, they, they they have at times, and it happened uh, last year when um, New Zealand uh, was in the chair in the Security Council, uh, they, they have at times uh, persuaded um, states within the Security Council to raise that issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, those small, uh, low-lying states, uh, island states, have done a a good job of helping highlight the huge problems of global warming. Mm -hmm. And and it's something that um, major states uh, start to focus on as well. You know, if you just think a few years back at this time of the year, thinking of the hurricane season and so on, Hurricane Sandy went up the east coast of the United States. Yes. Apart from anything else, flooded the UN basement, <laughs> destroyed a whole lot of publications, and so on. You know, so that uh, and and the Dutch, which is where we're, we're living, that's where the international court has said, look, 
uh, haven't, haven't um, some major industrialised countries really yet got the message about how to deal with low-lying coastlines. Mm-hmm. Much of the Netherlands is below seawater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's time to build some dikes, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, one of the problems with the states is, you know, the, the corporations got the same, um, you know, are basically treated like human beings and have the same rights. Uh, yep. Well, well, that's, you know, that, uh, some people say one of the great inventions of the 19th century, in addition to trains and telegraph and uh, steel making and so on and so on, was the creation of the... Uh, Limited liability company, <laughs> you know, so that that uh, private citizens like you and me could actually uh, invest a little bit of money in uh, a major corporate and and uh, not have have your house taken as collateral. You mm-hmm. know, the, the company would do that, and, and that goes back uh, a long while. If you think of the great trading companies of the 17th century, the Dutch East Indies Company, the English East Indies Company. Uh, you know, they think of those two tiny scraps of country, uh, England and the Netherlands, um, went off and traded with and conquered large chunks of the globe uh, way back then mm-hmm. through corporate bodies where, where, you know, where people had somewhat limited risk. Uh, so, so um, yeah, but there, there is the ongoing question of the... Uh, uh, social responsibility and environmental responsibility of corporates isn't there, as well as their responsibility to their uh, shareholders. Seems to me there's a responsibility to um, bring laws into the 21st century in most parts. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, well, some corporates are getting better at recognising that what treble line or whatever it is. Mm. I mean, this, this is getting a little away from my my. <laughs> Real knowledge or expertise. But, uh, Sorry, but no. But you're right. Right to raise it because uh, you know there is a, there is a danger at times. I think now that I'm back in the university after sort of 30 years away of doing other things, um, the, there is a danger of people becoming too narrow and too specialised, and that's one of the very good things. Um, in my case, of being back without you know a, a day by day commitment to judging this or advising on that or yeah and so on you know that there needs to be a wider view quite often taken of um these these uh, interrelated matters well the, you know you are talking about other international courts and tribunals as well yes. um you know with, with the icc the international criminal court um you know this there's, there's so many countries that aren't signed up to it and, yes. you know, and that's really interesting because, you know, a lot of the countries that aren't signed up to it are the ones that would break laws if they were. Um, you know, so how can that court really help in terms of bringing world peace when you have countries like Israel, uh, uh, Russia and the United States and, you know, China? You see what's happening in the South China Sea at the moment. I mean, mm. you, know, you know, are they redundant? Well, um, the... There are steps, I guess, in, in some kind of direction. You know, the, the courts that we're talking about, the, the International Court, as I indicated, can be traced back to 1920 and within the League of Nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the building that the court is in was built, um, was opened actually in August 1913, and if you think of what happened in August 1914, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's called the Peace Palace, and, uh, uh, and, and it was built... Um, because in the late 20th, late um, 19th century, there, there was a growing acceptance of the proposition that 
state should resolve their disputes not on the battlefield, but by um, arbitration of one form or another. And Andrew Carnegie, you know, was in the business of uh, building great libraries, mm-hmm. and and also was in, was in the international peace business. Good question whether he treated his own servants, own uh, workers, in quite the same way, but. Uh, there, there was this strong commitment to um, trying to get uh, peaceful settlement, peaceful settlement of international disputes, and uh, so that grand building was established, the Peace Palace, and that's where uh, my office was, and where the court um, sits. Mm-hmm. Very grand place with lots of grand decoration, and with that sense of theatre and majesty that um, courts can sometimes have. So. So that part of the international architect is only 100 years old, or not quite that really. And the International Criminal Court, um, in a way, um, was uh, you can see it's being preceded by Nuremberg and Tokyo, those trials of individuals for war crimes. Yep. Uh, and then in the early 1890s, after the end of the Cold War, there was willingness within the Security Council when they faced the desperate situations in former Yugoslavia and Rwanda at the time when New Zealand was last on the Security Council to set up tribunals ad hoc <coughs> and, and more recently there's been the Cambodian Tribunal <coughs> with um, Dame Sylvia Cartwright sitting on that uh, the Lebanon Tribunal with um, Sir David Baraguanas as a member um, and, and then the thought was uh, that we should have a, a general international criminal court. But as you say, major states have just not signed up. And, uh, and even those that have, um, like Kenya and so on, have been uh, very reluctant participants when it started to turn on their own citizens being prosecuted. Mm-hmm. So there's a long way to go in terms of subjecting states to to international law but I think I said earlier you know that sort of problem's been around in domestic legal systems too for a, for a long time yeah who creates the laws though um, well uh, a, a lot of it is agreed um, negotiated yeah you know one I, I mentioned the diplomatic and consular area but one major area of law that um, New, New Zealand has a great interest in it is the law of the sea. Yeah, of course. And and that was first created, really, um, by scholarly activity, by a Dutchman, uh, Grotius, uh, who argued for freedom of the seas. That was the Dutch interest. They, they were wanting to trade, especially to the East Indies, but also to the West Indies. Uh, they were not at all keen on the... Um, Monopolies, which uh, Portugal and Spain claimed, um, England had a rather different view. It was in favour of closed seas, at least thinking of the North Sea and so on. And but then practice developed, and um, in the 1950s, the Law of the Sea Convention was adopted. Uh, it was not in some ways satisfactory. And in 1982, there's this major convention supplemented by others that came into force in 1994 and under that uh, we now have not just a three mile uh, territorial sea and a possible 12 mile fishery zone, we have a 200 mile uh, exclusive economic zone Mm. um, and a 12 mile territorial sea uh, with all kinds of 
detailed rules um, about how uh, that system is to work. You know, so so there you get the international community first, the scholars and state practice and multinational negotiation and bilateral negotiation and adjudication. There were four cases in my time on the court in which we demarcated the court, demarcated overlapping zones between, for instance, Ukraine and Romania in mm-hmm. the Black Sea, um, between Peru and Chile in the Pacific, um, between uh, the Car- in the Caribbean, between um, Nicaragua and Honduras, and Nicaragua and Colombia, and they have court has cases now uh, from the Indian Ocean, for instance, between um, Kenya and Somalia. So, so these c- cases um, uh, keep coming to the court, um, yeah. working out the detail of that tremendously important body of law. And you, you know, you'd mentioned, I think, earlier the uh, case um, before a different tribunal relating to the Philippines and China. Um, no, I mean, it's not even just those countries, is it, when it comes to the air? You've got Thailand and a few others um, oh, that absolutely. Are embroiled in the whole South China Sea. There's, I think there's yeah. like six different nations, I think, maybe. Yes, no, you're right. And and also there's the East China Sea, too, with, yeah. um, with other states involved. And a bit further north, you've got Japan and uh, Russia and so on. So, so and, and sometimes the wise thing is not to try to resolve those things finally, uh, but rather to agree on some regime. You know, yeah. if you go south, uh, Antarctica was the subject of dis- overlapping disputed uh, sovereignty claims. But in 1959, the states that had been involved in exploration down there uh, decided uh, that they would not resolve the um, territorial disputes. <coughs> the aficionados say we all put them on ice. Those yeah. Uh, and, and we will agree that um, Antarctica is to be used only for peaceful purposes, no nuclear testing, uh, good science, good scientific research, careful use of resources and so on. And um, in some ways that would have been, that's what really has to happen in some of those contested areas. Not Don't, don't try to resolve who owns which bit, but rather let's regulate uh, navigation and fly, over, fly past and... Uh, resources and piracy and so on. Let's deal with the, the practical pressing problems. So yeah. Don't um, don't try to own, work out who owns which bit. Well, of course, on this, uh, uh, when it comes to Antarctica at the moment, you've got the whole New Zealand-US battle over making a sanctuary for toothfish yes, numbers yes. and whatnot. <laughs> and that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's hard, hard to know, isn't it, without yeah. being involved in the middle of it. But It's true. Yeah, but... but, but you know, a lot of these negotiations take a long time. I, I mentioned before the Law of the Sea negotiations, which began after the 1960 failure to get agreement, began in the late 1960s, and and effectively concluded, well, sort of concluded in 1994. But you know, with the need still to continue to work out um, how how some of those bodies of law apply in particular areas of um, the marine environment, mm-hmm. and and those issues uh, continue to arise too, or new issues continue to arise with new technology and with people looking at um, you know, different possible resources as technology gets more and more sophisticated and deeper and deeper probes can uh, be used.
Yes, indeed, and uh, of course there's um, a lot of gas and oil exploration uh, maybe going on uh, near our coastline too, and of course, and, and also New Zealand was embroiled in a little bit of a slave ship uh, uh, difficulty with uh, Thailand flagged ships coming down here, catching fish in New Zealand's economic area with New Zealand um, with our quota. Um, but using um, people that weren't getting paid or um, paid very little uh, yeah. in New Zealand's economic zone. So, um, you know, I think these are the things that need to be sorted out as well because I don't think, you know, there wasn't that much power that we, we could use at the time. Well, I think now New Zealand does require, doesn't it, that anyone fishing within the zone, fishing um, for quota that New Zealand is not fishing for, uh, has, has to be New Zealand flagged. Yes, yes. New Ze- and, and therefore New Zealand label or applies. And, yeah, um, that's right, so, that's right. So some of those um, terrible things that were happening um, now shouldn't be happening. Well, these are on ships that don't come to New Zealand ports, so <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> it's, it's very hard to police. Yeah, well, that's right. And, and you know, and that runs into the kind of issue that's arisen with uh, New Zealand uh, registered fishing boats too, doesn't it? And yes. Just what technology you can have on board, um, required to have on board to uh, film or to measure or GPS connections or whatever. Um, you know, the three quarters of the, three quarters of the world's um, face is uh, water. Yeah, and 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 New Zealand has that extraordinarily large zone, and, huge, uh, which which is, you know, just a, a great benefit, a sort of fluke of, uh, of of history and geography, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think we have the fifth largest coastline in the world. Yes, 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 yes and, and, and 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 the continental shelf. I mean, thinking of your reference to oil, goes out beyond the two hundred miles by quite quite large extents mm. in various parts as well. You know, and uh, so does that massive geographic advantage as compared say if you just go across the Pacific with uh, Chile, Ecuador and Peru where in effect the Andes go straight down into the ocean and uh, they don't have oil but they have uh, a huge amount of fishery Yes, and in the Humboldt, von Humboldt Strait uh, yeah. uh, and that takes us back to climate change because of uh, yeah. El Nino and <laughs> it's just oh. Yes, it's, move, it's, move it's that around. Compli- yeah, well, you must have had a complicated job. <laughs> well, no, no. Well, one of one of the limits of uh, being a, being a judge is that you are you are just focused on the particular facts of the particular the case. case. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and and just if I can make a recommendation for a great book about all that, there's there's a recent um, outstanding biography by Andrea Wolf on von Humboldt. Um, you know, who, among other things, identified that uh, great stream of water coming uh, along that coast. You know, this amazing um, uh, scientist, um, born in 1769, but uh, he, in the around the turn of the century, he got to know many of the great and the good. Well, Goethe to start with, but then Darwin and. and mm-hmm. And and uh, so on, and banks and so on. You know, banks sailed past you in 1769, and uh, uh, and this brilliant young German scientist, um, Prussian scientist. Uh, well, the book is called The Invention of Nature. You know, it's a, yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. book which does say, look, we've got to look at all this stuff as a whole. Uh, yeah, which is very difficult, but that's that's the nature of a whole lot of these problems. Indeed. Well, um, Sir Kenneth Keith, or Ken, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, We've run out of time, but thank you so much for um, joining me this morning. It's been a pleasure. 
Well, thank you very much. Yes. I've enjoyed it. Yes, me too. And you are giving your talk tomorrow, uh, Friday the 14th, uh, from 12 to 1 p.m. at the um, for the National Peace and Conflict Studies Department at uh, St. David's Theatre Number 1. Uh, World Peace Through World Law, the role of the International Court of Justice and other international courts and tribunals. Thank you so much once again for joining me this morning. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, Thanks. Travel Bye. safe down here. Thanks very much. Bye.